Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With the passing of Queen Elizabeth, uh, one aspect of her reign is the fact that she was inherited the title, the defender of the faith. And uh, again, this goes back to uh, 15, well, actually before 1534, uh, the papacy had given that title to Henry the uh, eighth because of the work he had done uh, in a, a, an apologetic piece uh, over against Luther uh, regarding the sacraments. Uh, but when he became, when he broke with Rome, he, of course, fused in his own person both the supremacy of the state and the supremacy of the church. So today, of course, we don't think of the royal family or the, the British monarch uh, being especially engaged in matters of the church, but she does have the title, or had the title, Defender of the Faith. Now that will go to uh, King Charles. You would have thought there'd be some serious discussion, with all the coverage that there was yesterday, some serious discussion about not only her title, Defender of the Faith, but what about her personal faith? Join me right now to talk about it. There's a man who was actually was was eyeing uh, how the BBC was covering this aspect of the story and how the U.S. media was covering this aspect of the story. He's Terry Mattingly. He's the editor of Get Religion. He writes the nationally syndicated On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate. He's a senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, focusing on religion, news, and the First Amendment. You can uh, go to getreligion.org and follow him at Tmat, that's uh, the letter T M A T T dot net, or on Twitter at Tweet Mattingly. Terry, good to have you back here. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, you spent a lot of time watching the BBC rather than uh, the U.S. media yesterday, but you did uh, consume both. What was the big difference? Well, I think it's safe to say that the Church of England as viewed as a part of kind of the political reality of England mm -hmm. and as such is covered with the degree of seriousness that religious institutions don't get here in the United States. Yeah. And there are times when that's good and there are times when that is bad. Right. But one of the things that we did see yesterday over and over in the, they, they had obviously pre-prepared and then inserted a few photos at the last moment. They had pre-prepared like a short five-minute summary of the life of Queen Elizabeth, or as now some people are beginning to call her Elizabeth the Great, hmm. that they had prepared this, and it ended with a strong reference to her personal Christian faith, you know, as being a major part yeah. of her life yeah. and work. Now, I mean, in the United States coverage that I've seen, I think it's safe to say that she's being covered as a beloved celebrity. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the British coverage includes a lot of the celebrity element. I mean, it could. How could it not? Right. But but at the same time, there is just this overwhelming reality of this woman's historical role in the nation. Um, former Prime Minister Johnson, who spoke today um, in Parliament, I was not aware that she's. He said the last living woman 
to have served in the British military during World War II. Oh, that's, I, I had no idea. I, mean, I knew she had served. A, um, yeah, she, that, that's certainly an interesting symbolic role. Yeah. Um, I mean, so there's this, I mean, it was very moving just moments ago before I came up to call y'all. Uh, I watched the the service, the first of the kind of memorial services being held, a prayer service for the nation that included the first address by King Charles III. And at the end of it was the very first time that the nation has officially sung God Save the King in 70 years. <laughs> that's, that's right, yeah. And you could tell that a lot of people in the crowd, and, and once again, I, I'm assuming everything that's happening in these services was done according to her descriptions, mm -hmm. her, you know, her de decision, all the way down to the Eastern Orthodox icons oh. on both of the pulpits that were used for the, uh, and I, I, I saw that as a possible salute to her husband, um, who, as he, he told many, uh, I'm a part of the Church of England, but I've never stopped being Orthodox. Yes, right. Referring yeah. to being, being baptized and raised in Greek Orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah, I knew um, that. But you could tell that people were struggling in the in the congregation and the uh, congregation by the way all they did was open the doors so whoever i mean it was full obviously it was packed but i i assume it was her decision that instead of this being a select congregation or audience of people pre-approved all they did was open the doors really and whoever was waiting and had been waiting for hours got in wow that's so that, that is was interesting a, yeah that gave it a very interesting uh tone what do we know about the depth of her personal faith? She had her annual Christmas messages, which you point out earlier on, they were kind of platitudinous. But as time went on, did uh, her Christian, did she bear witness more fully as she yeah. went on in years? Well, they always contained explicit religious references to Christmas okay. Okay. that you would not have heard. But in the later years of her life, they, they became frankly, quite remarkable hmm. when you, you consider and I'm going to let me read uh, something from her 2011 address where she's talking about, you know, faith in time and tough times. And she opens this section by just saying Jesus was born into a world of fear. And then jumping down, she says, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves. Hmm from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a savior with the power to forgive. <laughs> Forgiveness lies at the heart of Christian faith. It can heal families, it can restore friendships, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. Wow. That's remarkable it language. Is. That is very and strong. And her last Christmas address was just as explicit. And, of course, that one, she's primarily talking about the loss of her husband yes. and the role of her faith in recovering from that. Um, there were other occasions. I, I have a friend who's an Anglican priest who is spending his time right now trying to confirm an anecdote yeah. that is being passed around among some clergy with ties to Anglicanism in general. This is an American, but he's a an Anglican priest, not an Episcopal priest. He's joined the more conservative alternative Anglican okay. body. Okay. 
And there are several evangelicals who through the years have served as her personal chaplain. And so this could have come from a number of sources and he's trying to run it down. And I share it knowing that it's speculation. Right. But yet it to me, this is exactly the kind of quote that if I was a journalist in England right now and had the hours of the clock to do so in the next 10 days, I would be trying to confirm this. Mm-hmm. And I have another angle of her story that I also think they should be trying to confirm, one that made it into the Netflix uh, series called The Crown, oh, yeah, the Crown. Mm-hmm. which I imagine they wouldn't have put it there with a lot of research. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this other anecdote, one of the chaplains of Her Late Majesty Queen Victoria had been preaching on the second coming of the Lord, and afterward, in a conversation with the preacher, the Queen, this is Queen Victoria. Oh, how I wish, yeah, Queen Victoria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. said how I wish the Lord would come in my lifetime. Why ask the chaplain? Does Your Majesty feel this earnest desire? The Queen replied with quivering lips, "I would love to lay my crown at His feet." Oh, oh, oh. Um, wow. Um, so you know, people are. He's trying to confirm that. Yeah. You know, to the degree to which that rec- represented perhaps the, yeah. the viewpoints of Elizabeth. To me, the anecdote that is fascinating that made it into the crown was her famous meetings in 1955 with Billy Graham, mm-hmm. which started mm-hmm. a lifetime correspondence between the two in private letters. Interesting. And the context in the, sur- in the show, the, the crown, was that this is right about the time that Prince Philip is rumored, I stress that, is rumored to have had his only infidelities to the okay. queen. Okay. He was a he was a ladies' man, you know, for his entire young life. Mm-hmm. And in that context, Billy Graham met with her, and her question, according to people with means to know, and it made it into this fictional version called The Crown, was she wanted to know if Christians have to forgive people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> If there are circumstances under which it's impossible to forgive. Yeah. And Billy Graham tells her, yes, by all means, our Savior forgave those who were crucifying. And she responded, quoting the scripture, she says it's kind of a conditional um, forgiveness, you know, saying that they didn't know what they were doing. And Graham said, yes. So in those occasions, we must pray for those that we are even struggling to forgive even as we pray for forgiveness. Mm. And that's how the scene ends. Yeah. Which um, I think that's interesting. I would imagine somewhere in the diaries of Billy Graham, uh, he would, of course, never have violated that confidence. Right. But it would be interesting to know where that anecdote came from to make it into that that series, which was heavily researched. Is uh, Prince Philip uh, in that scene? No. Okay. No, this is a private meeting between the Queen and Billy Graham. Okay. And she had asked him to speak in her private chapel on Easter morning. Yeah. And they have the text of the sermon. So the, the, the crown, that episode is from the second year. That episode of the crown includes a piece of Billy Graham's sermon. <laughs> and he's preaching on what does it mean to be a Christian. Yeah. And it shows her sitting there, and Prince Philip is depicted as being very nervous and continuing and looking down at his wife all the time, not so much with displeasure as much as with misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And Graham is saying, above all, to be a Christian is to claim Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and that he will, and, and, the, and the queen is shown sitting there in her pew just beaming <laughs> through this whole thing. Um, 
I, I think there are elements of her faith and her life that should be a part of the research for writing about her death. Sure. Because she said they were central to her life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so then you, you research how that affected her life and how she lived that out. Yeah. But how do you get around her own words over and over and over about her own life? And, and you know uh, that many uh, journalists regard religious references as kind of window dressing. And so they don't, yeah. you know, they don't, uh, they, they kind of don't look at those uh, elements. They look at other elements in the person's life. Well, I hear the music coming up, Terry. Thank you. That was very helpful, very interesting, and uh, always appreciate the time you spend with us. Thank you. Thank you. I would urge people to look up this piece at Get Religion right now. There's a lot there we didn't have a chance to discuss. We'll have, we'll have it linked at our site so people can get it. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks, Terry. Terry Mattingly.